0: Our Old Testament reading is taken from Jonah 1, 4-6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series uh, through the book of Jonah. I should also note, if you look, the name of, of today's sermon is Responsibility, Repercussions, and Repentance. And I was, I was filing this sermon away on my computer, and I realized that just a few months ago, actually, during our, our Joseph sermon series, I had named a uh, sermon Responsibility, Reconciliation, and Repentance. Um, so I don't know if I'm out of creativity or if I've sort of exhausted my, my penchant for pastoral alliteration. Um, I do promise it is a different sermon, uh, at least the middle part, right? So... <laughs> So we'll see. Um, but do, uh, do pray with me. Um, let us approach the Lord as we approach this text together. God, our Father, we thank you for, for who you are, and we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the passage. We thank you for the truths that it speaks. Lord, we thank you for the way that it shows us ourself, And we thank you for the way that it directs us to the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, that we ask that you would make this text efficacious to our heads, to our hearts, to our hands. We ask that in his name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, there's a, there's a scene at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it's when, when Frodo realizes that the ring in his possession is the ring of, of power, right? And, and if you know the story, this is the ring that the evil Sauron, the powerful Sauron, will do anything to get back. And Frodo realizes not only that he is in much, much danger, he also realizes that a great responsibility has been placed upon him. He realizes that he is the one by very dangerous roads, who will have to take the ring to the the first council of of Rivendell. And and from there, he's going to take the ring all the way to, to Mordor to destroy it and Mount Doom. And it's interesting because here at the very beginning, reflecting on this task that he never would have chosen for himself, he says this to his friend Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And in response, his his good and wise friend Gandalf, he says this, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And this is a fitting way to, to frame the opening events in the book of Jonah. As with Frodo... A great responsibility has been placed upon Jonah, a responsibility that he would actually rather not receive. And like Frodo, this responsibility is demanding and dangerous. Right? Last week we talked about the power and the brutality of the Assyrian Empire. And this is the empire of which Nineveh is a part. And so Jonah's job to publicly call the city to account for their evil. This is not a job for the faint of heart. We completely understand Frodo's wishing that the ring had never come to him. And we understand Jonah's wishing that the word of the Lord had never come to him. Arise, go to Nineveh. Yes, these are difficult and these are demanding responsibilities. We all feel that. And yet... Frodo and Jonah are still responsible for these things. They're still called to do a certain thing. They are still responsible. We would understand their refusal, but we cannot affirm or overlook their refusal. As Gandalf tells us, the tasks that we are given are not for us to decide. Instead, What we have to decide is what we will do with the time that has been given to us. And we see this reality brought into high relief in today's passage. And so I want to look at it under three headings. Again, (laughs) responsibility, repercussions, and repentance. And so let's look at each of those in turn, starting with responsibility. Again, right? Jonah is called to do a very difficult and dangerous thing, and we cannot appreciate Jonah's situation unless we acknowledge and realize that. All the same, all the same, Jonah is running away from this difficult thing, and this running away is an act of sin. And so let's look a little bit more deeply at the concept of sin. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he points out that in our modern world, We've pretty much rejected the traditional notion of sin. And this has a number of effects. But one of them is this. Taylor says, What was formerly sin is often now seen as sickness. What was formerly sin is often now seen as sickness. What this does is it pushes the responsibility for evil out there. It pushes the responsibility for the wrong we do out there, outside of us. Because if there is such a thing as sin, then the ultimate source of my moral failure is within me. It's my own fallen and corrupted and sinful heart. However, if evil is like a medical sickness, it's like a cold that I catch from out there, from the outside. The circumstances in which I have been put are ultimately responsible for what I've done. If someone gets sick with the flu, for instance, you wouldn't consider that a moral lapse or a moral failure. right? They caught some virus or caught some bacteria from the outside. When you get the flu, it is not a moral lapse if you cannot keep down your lunch. In the same way, if you find yourself in a situation in which outside circumstances keep you from doing good or from abstaining from evil, the same dynamic applies. What we have here is, is, is a flu, but it's not a flu upon the stomach. It's a flu upon our ethical capacities. And recently I came across an article that, that demonstrates well what Taylor is getting at, at, at casting sin as a kind of medical sickness. There was a politician in another country who, who was found out for their behavior— And that person resigned from their office and issued this statement. Quote, It's not a behavior I can explain because it's not rational in any way. And after medical evaluation, I understand I'm not well. The mental health professional I see says my recent behavior is consistent with recent events giving rise to extreme stress response. And to begin with, I should say that I can't begin to imagine the stress that politicians have to endure, especially in our modern moment of the roughest rhetoric, and sometimes even threats, and and perhaps this politician endured more than most. And I don't want to single out this one instance, but I want to see it as reflecting the larger pattern that Taylor is here talking about. This person frames the situation in distinctly medical terms. The wrongdoing is a kind of symptom that is consistent with the circumstances of stress that that person has been placed within. And as per Taylor, the concept of sin has been replaced with a medicalized language. If you have the flu, there's a good chance you're going to lose your lunch. If you are exposed to these stressful circumstances, there's a good chance that this or that wrong behavior will be the stress response. And again, of course, this is not to discount the very, very, very important work of mental health professionals. Far from it. Please hear me say that. This is a much deeper issue. It forces us to answer this question. Can we accept the concept of sin? That no matter what is out there, there is evil inside of us. Yes, there's evil out there, too, and we're going to talk about that. But the doctrine of sin makes us the ultimate source of the evil that we do. And so we are responsible and we are culpable for what we do. And in response to all of this, you might think, well, isn't the concept of sin an affront, an attack on human dignity? But Taylor pushes back here. Taylor says that if we see our wrongdoing as a kind of medicalized sickness, then we're actually giving ourselves less dignity. He writes this. He says, Our sick selves are even more being talked down to, just treated as things, than were the faithful of your in churches. We come to understand ourselves as things, things that just need to be put in the right situations with the right stimuli, We just need the right kind of manipulation. We're just cogs that need to be fitted in this or that place in the large societal machine. And so we no longer see ourselves as responsible moral agents. And so you might ask, well, aren't there mitigating circumstances? And absolutely, yes, yes. There are certainly biological conditions and social circumstances and a million other things that can make it harder to do good than to do evil. To use an extreme example, but, but, but one that actually works to lay the case bare, think of your average German family during World War II. Imagine that their good friends, a Jewish family, ask them if they will hide them in their house to escape from the Nazis. This family is being asked to perform a great duty. And it's just as dangerous and just as difficult as Jonah's going to Nineveh. But the danger and the difficulty of the request does not take away the family's responsibility. They will have to choose. Yes, we would understand if they said no. We understand exactly why they would not do it. But if they say no, they are still responsible for not having done good. It would be very, very hard, very hard to say yes here. But if they do say no, we all sense, and we sense rightly, that a deep moral failure has taken place. And, of course, it is a million times easier to think on this issue as an outside observer of history. If we were in that situation, we all hope that our hearts would do the right thing. But we also know that our hearts falter. And as with Jonah, what the good requires here is a great moral good indeed. In such a situation, there are a million factors that make the good harder to do. Again, there is evil out there as well as evil in here. This truth is also part of the doctrine of sin. Yes, sin corrupts our own hearts, but all of creation is now under the curse of sin. Now nothing in creation, except angels, behave like they should. Our bodies and brains, our work, our communities, our social systems, our physical environments, and even our own ecosystems, all of these are under the curse of sin. Evil is in here, and evil is out there. Because it is in us, we are always responsible for the things that we do. Because it is out there, sometimes it is harder to do good and avoid evil. Again, to use our extreme example, it is harder to do good in Nazi Germany. But the human in that society is still responsible for the good that they have refused And what this means is that two different extremes must be avoided. One extreme is to give humans no moral agency, to say that the evil is only out there. The other extreme is to make our moral agency the only factor in what we do. Evil is only in here. If evil is only out there, then again, we have the medicalized language of morality and the removal of responsibility. We are things that need to be manipulated, that need to be placed in the right circumstances with the right stimuli. We're no longer moral agents. This notion is not only demeaning, but it also keeps us from truth, from calling ourselves and others account for wrongdoing. Even more, it keeps a community from acts of confession. It will make us a people that blame shifts It will make us a people who can't really take a hard and accurate look at ourselves. Ask yourself, how quick are you to explain away or justify things you've done because of stress, because of circumstances, because of things that have happened in the past, because of something happening now at work or home or at class? Are you willing, without caveats or qualifications or excuses, to say, hey, I messed up? I'm really, really sorry. But again, there is also another extreme the notion that the evil is only in us. Yes, the primary seat of sin is in our own hearts, but we must also remember that there is evil out there as well. There are circumstances that we navigate, experiences that we bear, social systems that we exist within, health conditions that we carry. That do make it harder to do good at times. And there is absolutely a way to recognize and appreciate this reality, and to do so without taking away our moral agency. We understand that you've lost your temper after a long, hard day at work or at home. We can and should sympathize with that. But you are still responsible for losing your temper. We understand that you are not able to finish this project because of all of the unexpected things that happened. We can and should sympathize with that. But you are still responsible for not making good on your commitment. And when you do confess the wrong that you have done, my encouragement to you is this, and and, and this is an encouragement that I don't always do so well, but my encouragement is this. As much as you can Do not appeal to mitigating circumstances. Trust those to whom you are confessing to see these factors and circumstances and to take note of them. Your responsibility is to confess without qualification or caveats or excuses what you are responsible for. And that's why it's important to be a part of a good, strong community that you can trust and that you know it will sympathize with you while calling you to account. The Christian community, we know that we are all sinners. We know that we all fall short. We know that we all work evil because of the evil in our hearts. And this should make us a community of love and forgiveness. People who regularly confess their sin are also the people that are the best at forgiving sin they're ready to forgive their neighbor because they have no illusions about themselves. Peter Morin, the friend and coworker of of Dorothy Day, he said that we should strive for, quote, a society in which it is easier for people to be good. The hope is that the church, this church, would be that kind of community where it is easier to do good, even and especially hard things that are good. And perhaps, like Jonah, even right now, God is calling you to do a good thing, but a hard thing. And that brings us to our second point, repercussions. Despite the very difficult, dangerous, and demanding thing that God calls Jonah to do, again, he is still responsible for doing it. And we see this in God's response to Jonah's fleeing. We read, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea that, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah flees in disobedience, and the repercussion is that God sends a great storm that keeps him from traveling to Tarshish. And yes, this is a special act of God. We, we actually talked about this in the children's message, but nonetheless, this is always the way that it works. In his book on Jonah, Tim Keller writes this. He says, The dismaying news is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. We must be careful here. This is not to say that every difficult thing that comes into our lives is the punishment for some particular sin. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin. But it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. We cannot treat our bodies indifferently and still expect to have good health. We cannot treat people indifferently and expect to maintain their friendship. We cannot all put our selfish interests ahead of the common good and still have a functioning society. If we violate the design and purpose of things, they strike back. All sin has a storm attached to it. Yes, Jonah, Jonah is caught in the storm. And when we sin, we too are caught in a storm. However, Jonah is not the only one that the storm affects. The sailors too experience the storm of Jonah's sin. And when we sin, those around us are also lashed by the water and the wind and the waves of the storms that we unleash. However, notice here Jonah's inability to see this or or at least to care anything about this. The storm that he caused is a big one. It's big enough to terrify these experienced sailors. They're in fear for their very lives. Yet while everyone on the boat is experiencing this storm caused by Jonah's sin, what is it that Jonah does? We read this. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. He goes down inside the boat He goes to the place most removed from the crashing wind, in water, in waves, and he just goes to sleep. He leaves the sailors to deal with his mess, and he doesn't think twice about it. Sin not only causes a storm, it also makes us focus on ourselves. Sin makes us selfish. It gives us tunnel vision that only lets us see ourselves. Uh, consider a personal example. I was recently in the car with my kids, and one of them said how much he loved our dog and how much he was so glad that we had him. And at that moment, at that moment, I almost said this. Well, if that's true, why is it so hard to find someone to take him for a walk? Right? I, I almost said that. I almost said that, and then I caught myself. And so look what I was doing. Like what I was doing, I was filtering what was said through myself, through my convenience, through my own childish frustrations, and, and of course, I can always get up and take him for a walk. My kids were saying a good thing about the dog, and that's great, and I was trying to make it about myself, and I caught myself, barely, right? And, and so probably with, with, with the cadence of, of a robot and the, and the grammar of a preschool book, I forced myself to say this. Yes, he is a very good dog. I'm glad you like him. (laughs) Right? That's what I could manage in that moment, at that second. It's hard. But here's the thing. As we see here, sin makes everything about ourselves. And in our moment, our modern moment, this is so important to realize and to recognize. Why? Because when everything is about us, everything is about how we feel. And friends, our feelings are not always right. I saw a person once who was wearing a t-shirt, and the t-shirt said, your feelings are valid. Your feelings are valid. But can we really make a blanket statement like that? Yes, there is a place to confess our feelings, especially to the Lord in prayer. But that does not mean that our feelings are right and valid. In fact, very often in the course of the Psalms, you see the psalmist change their perspective. Consider, for instance, Psalm 73. After expressing feelings of frustration over what seems like the uselessness of living a faithful life in an unjust world, the psalmist says this, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then the psalmist goes on to say this, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Yes, it was good. It was good to lay these first feelings before God. But in the process and in the process, the psalmist realizes that these feelings are not proper feelings. And both parts of this process are true for us. We all know this. Would anyone say that greedy feelings are valid? What about racist feelings? Misogynistic feelings? Adulterous feelings? Murderous feelings? Of course not. We all know that certain feelings are wrong. They are not the right way to respond to this or that situation, or to feel about it. However, as the philosopher Alistair McIntyre points out, the key form that our discussions about morality and ethics now takes is that of emotivism. Emotivism, and McIntyre describes it like this: He says, "Emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments, and more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but." Expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feelings. Emotivism tells us that what I feel is right. My personal feelings become my ethical compass. Everything becomes about me. In the case of Jonah, we find the captain of the boat come to Jonah and wake him up. He calls Jonah to account for his sleeping when everyone is in danger for their very lives. And the emotivism response is this. Are you calling my feelings wrong? Are you saying that my feelings of wanting to sleep here by myself and leave you all to the storm are invalid? And of course, the captain would be completely in the right to say, Yes, Jonah, your feelings are wrong. Jonah, you are responding to and understanding the situation in an improper way. Yes, Jonah, that might be how you feel, but this is not how you should feel. Jonah, regardless of what that trendy t-shirt says, your feelings are not valid. And in fact, classical ethics was all about becoming the kind of person whose feelings and emotions and affections and desires matched with the way that the world actually is. And this is also the biblical view. In biblical and classical ethics, we aim to conform ourselves to the true and to the good and to the beautiful, to the very image of Jesus Christ. This is an ethic of self-transformation, but our modern ethics is simply one of self-expression. Here, our primary ethical command is simply to be yourself. But really think about this. Consider, for instance, sociologist Jean Twenge's thoughts on this ethical advice. She writes this, here's the problem. This advice is not just self-focused, it's delusional. Just be yourself" sounds fine at first, but disintegrates upon closer inspection. What if you're a jerk? What if you're a serial killer? Maybe you should be someone else. And we, we know that. But for us, feelings are everything. We think, how can anyone else tell me that my feelings are wrong? This is how I feel. And this is the ethic of emotivism. However, we do need to be careful here. The Bible doesn't say that our feelings should be ignored. We should examine them, and and, and our feelings might be telling us something important. And like every part of our humanity, our feelings are fallen and corrupted by sin, and they need to be sanctified and they need to be trained. As we grow in Christ, our feelings should grow too. We should be training ourselves to feel rightly about the situations that we encounter. If Jonah were more virtuous here, he would know that his feelings to go off by himself and think only of himself are wrong. He could even act against his feelings, knowing that often proper feelings follow proper actions and not vice versa. We are all called to act in accordance with how we should feel regardless of whether we do feel that way. And yes, when we act as we should, we will often find that we begin to feel as we should. And yes, Jonah's behavior might be shocking, but this is something that we all do. We all, in a million ways, make it about me, 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 me. Friends, if you find yourself explaining events, especially events that have caused a storm in relationships, primarily in terms of your feelings or how it made you feel, you may be embracing the ethic of emotivism rather than the biblical ethic. You may be in the deep part of the boat with Jonah. And please hear me. Expressing how you feel is not bad. There is an important place for this. However, your feelings are not meant to be your primary moral compass. Jonah is doing exactly what he feels like doing. And in the process, he is deepening his own sin and he's prolonging the storm. We too may feel like going down into the boat, but we need to stay on the deck of the ship and reckon with our responsibilities and what it is that we have done. For instance, if you are a student... You should not skip class because you don't feel like you're in the proper headspace to to go. I understand that. I sympathize with that. But you do have the responsibility to your teachers and to your institution to attend your classes. In fact, the best way to get out of the funk probably is just to go to class. Again, right feelings often follow right actions. In contrast, invalid feelings tend to follow invalid actions. This is also true about coming and participating in church each and every Sunday morning. Or think about this. When you go through a difficult issue, you might only reach out to people who you know will affirm what you're already feeling. You want more support for your own personal reaction to the situation. However, if you really want to see if your feelings are valid then make sure that you are talking with people who you know will challenge you and will call you to account. Friends who truly love us will do what they can to make sure that we're not making life all about us. And when they challenge us, we might say something like this, well, you, you, you don't understand what I've been through. And our friends in love will say, I understand that. And I sympathize with that, and I want to support you as you process that, and I want to help you bear that burden. We talked about that above. That's so important. But they will also say that what we're talking about now is what you did in this particular situation. Do you have a friend who will do this? If not, find a friend like this and become a friend like this. We must let our friends wake us up from the selfish slumber of Jonah. And this takes us to our third and final point, repentance. When the captain wakes up Jonah, he says this, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Notice the command here, the command that the captain gives to Jonah. It's the command, arise, arise. And this is the very same command That God gave to Jonah, right? Arise and go to Nineveh. But here it's different. It's not arise and go to Nineveh. Instead, it's arise and go to God. In fact, the captain speaks of the God, the God. And so here is what this command means. Oh, sleeper, awake and run to the one true God, throwing yourself upon his mercy so that we may not perish. And friends, we are all Jonah. We have all made it about ourselves. We have all done wrong and we have all failed to do the good. But here's the question, the key question, the question that everything else hinges upon. Will we wake up and see that? Will we wake up and see that? There's another time in scripture where a man is woken up on a boat amidst a storm as his disciples, they, they, they find themselves engulfed by a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus Christ, God become human, is asleep within the boat. The disciples wake him from his sleep. And this is not the sleep of Jonah. This is not the sleep of blocking out God's will and God's purposes. No, this is the sleep of resting in God's purposes. And as they wake him, they come to him. And they come with the same fear as that of the captain, the fear of perishing. They wake a Christ and they say, Save us, Lord, save us, Lord, we are perishing. The storm has brought them to a place where they know that they are perishing. They know that their only hope is to throw themselves upon the mercy of the Lord. And so when they say, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They're actually offering the very same prayer that Jonah himself should have been offering on the boat. Christ rises, and Christ calms the storm. And so, they do not perish. However, there is something deeper here. That is, Christ himself will perish. Christ will be killed. Remember that sin is like a storm. And the effect of the storm of sin is death in separation from God, in separation from one another. The effect of sin is full and total perishing. And at the cross, Christ takes this perishing for us. The storm of sin crashes upon Christ, and it breaks apart his humanity, both his body and soul, like the wreckage of a battered and sunken ship. Yes, Christ in his humanity perishes, but he does so that we might live. He perishes for our sins so that we might not perish for it. He dies and is resurrected so that we might die to sin and be raised in glory to God. The earlier quotation was taken from Matthew's account of Jesus calming the storm. In Mark, though, we read the disciples say this to Christ. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And of course, Christ cares that they are perishing because he will perish himself on their behalf. And so, as I've heard it pointed out before, the real question is this it's the question that Christ asked to the disciples and to all of us Don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care that I'm giving my life for you? And yet, to see and to recognize and embrace what Christ is doing and to repent, you must wake up. You must wake up. You cannot truly see and understand the perishing of Christ if you do not see the sin in your own heart and the responsibility that you bear for the wrong that you have done. If you do not realize that you need the perishing of Christ that this perishing is what you deserve, you cannot love Christ or his sacrifice. Only when you realize that Christ's perishing is your only hope in the storm of a fallen world full of sin and evil, only then will you see Christ and his sacrifice as true and good and beautiful. And only then, only then will you see the full worth and the dignity of the human being. Yes, yes, you were lost. So lost that Christ had to die To save you. And yes, you are loved. So loved that Christ was willing to die to save you. The church. The church is a community that repents and confesses because we are wholly lost without Christ. And the church. The church is a community that forgives and embraces because we are wholly loved by Christ. And so before we respond to God's call to arise and go to Nineveh, to go and do the good and hard things that God has called us to, we must first follow the call of the captain. Sleeper, arise, call out to your God that you may not perish. We have all run away from God like Jonah. We are perishing, but Christ has perished for us. And it is because Christ has perished for us that we can actually do the good, hard things that God has called us to. Yes, God calls us to hard things, but Christ has already done the hardest thing of all for us. Yes, God calls us to hard things, but not to become His children. We are already his children in Christ. He calls us to hard things so that we would grow into the full stature of what he has already made us. The beloved children of God. Yes, God calls us to hard things, but not out of guilt to earn our own salvation. No, he calls us to hard things because Christ has already achieved our salvation in full. And everything that we do is simply an act of gratitude for what Christ has already done. Yes, God calls us to hard things, but it's because of the great, great dignity that he has given to us and because of his stubborn insistence to make us what he always intended us to become. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and the grace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that Christ has perished so that we may not... May we grow in our faith in him. And from gratitude in all that he has done for us, let us follow you in gladness, in goodness, in joy. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.